Hey everyone, David Kern here. Just wanted to let you know about our friends over at Belmont Abbey College who would like to invite all current high school students to attend its summer program, SCOLA. Students will spend a week on their beautiful North Carolina campus just outside of Charlotte, engaging in great book seminars with other young men and women from around the country. You get a chance to go whitewater rafting, hiking, and visit, of course, the city of Charlotte in addition to all the academic things that are going on. More importantly than all that stuff, though, students will have the opportunity to build lasting friendships and have the time for reflection and prayer. Experience leisure in the best sense this summer at Belmont Abbey College's SCOLA program. For more, visit belmontabbeycollege.edu slash SCOLA. That's belmontabbeycollege.edu slash S-C-H-O-L-A. All right, and with that, here is today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. Today, we have a very special bonus episode for you. Recently, as you know, we finished a conversation, a series of episodes on Leif Anger's popular novel, Peace Like a River. Along the way, we posted a couple of uh, notifications or reminders on, on our Instagram page at Close Reads Pods that we were doing this. And Leif Anger somehow got wind of that and said, hey, do you mind if I follow along? So I thought, well, let's, maybe we can get him on the show. So send him a message through Facebook because it's 2020. And uh, luckily, uh, Mr. Enger got back in touch with me and we were able to set up the conversation that you are about to hear. If you are new to Close Reads, then what we do is we spend uh, a handful of episodes discussing really good books uh, really deeply, really closely, uh, hence the title of the podcast. And uh, we did that with uh, Peace Like a River and it was a great time. So if you have read the book and would love to hear some in-depth conversation about it, or I suppose if you haven't read the book and you know are going to be reading it or want to read it and want a um, you know, digital book club of sorts to follow along, then please feel free to do so. You can also follow along with us on Instagram, on Twitter at Close Reads Pods, and you can join our Facebook discussion group. Uh, just search Close Reads in the Facebook bar there and we can, uh, we can add you to that page if you click that request button. Uh, before we dive into this, I want to give you a little bit of information on Mr. Anger. Besides writing Peace Like a River, he also worked as a reporter and producer for Minnesota Public Radio for nearly 20 years. Today, he still lives in Minnesota with his wife and his two sons, and he published recently, just last year, a novel called Virgil Wander, which I highly recommend you check out. And then back in 2008, he published So Brave, Young, and Handsome, which is another novel worth checking out. So in this conversation, Mr. Enger and I talked a lot about his motivations, his inspirations, the difficult work of making choices as a writer. Uh, We talked about movies. We talked about uh, a love of Westerns. Uh, We talked about some specific choices he made in Peace Like a River and then a little bit in Virgil Wander. Uh, So if you are a writer, you like writing, or you like Mr. Enger's work, or you like Peace Like a River, I hope this conversation, I think this conversation will be appealing to you. So with that, I will uh, go ahead and kick it over to my conversation with Mr. Leif Enger. Hope you enjoy. I'd love to start with um, some things that I'm just curious about. And I've read about the book and how you... Well, uh, maybe this isn't true. Maybe it's just what you read on the internet and you know you can't trust everything on the internet. But I read that <laughs> the genesis of this story had to do with stories that you were telling your children. Is, is, that, is that accurate? Uh, well, um, you know, it's not so much that I was... I, I was reading the book to them as I went. Okay, okay. Um, and it, it wasn't so much family folklore. Um, what happened is that... Uh, Let's see. What's the best way to talk about this? I guess you know when it when it gets dark, uh, you sort of look across the landscape and find the lights and kind of head for them. And and I wrote that book because things had gotten a little dark. I mean, Robin and I have two kids. Um, the oldest was four then, and he developed a case of asthma that was at times debilitating and other times life threatening. So hmm. we were in a small town, coping with circumstances past our control, certainly past our understanding. And, and, um, and every day I would pray for the, the miracle of open lungs. And every day those, those prayers uh, went unanswered. So I did what I think people do, which is try to understand a problem by, by writing about it. Mm. Um, and the act of writing, I think, about characters that I loved who were up against it and who were sick and poor and misunderstood, uh, somehow that put some light into what was a, you know, 
a fairly dark personal landscape. So I think in both reading and writing, you gravitate toward what you need. <laughs> yeah. And and I wrote it because I needed some light, and I would read it to the kids and to Rob and my wife as I went along. Um, mm. And maybe the light is what what readers like about it too. Mm. Did you? How long did it take you to write it? Uh, it took about five years. Okay. Lots of stops and starts. So did you? You said you started it when your son was four. So then he was nine or yeah. 10 or something like that. When, when you finished it, did he, as you were writing it, did he recognize himself in it and then really value that? Oh, um, well, you know, you'd have to ask him how much he valued it, but he was awfully helpful <laughs> to me yeah. uh, because he could describe to me what it felt like to be, uh, to, to not be able to breathe, um, mm-hmm. easily. And, you know, he'd be fine. And, and then suddenly he would have an attack and, and within minutes, um, he would be gasping and his lips would be turning blue. Um, and it was, it was off to the hospital for a a treatment. Um, and, and so, uh, he was, he was a pretty articulate little kid and he, and he was able to say it's like this or it's like that. And, and so that was, I I could not have written a book without that. Mm. Um, and of course, when, you know, anyone who's had a sick kid understands the bond that gets formed at a time like that. Um, so I wrote it for, you know, to understand what was happening to him, I think, um, and to to begin to know what to make of it. So when you talk about this, do you find that people sort of instinctively say, well, if one of your children was Reuben, how does that correlate to the other people in your family? Do people ask you if there's a Swede in the family? <laughs> or did you sort oh, of... you know, not, not really. I mean, look, you can start with someone, um, you know, you can base a character off of someone. Yeah, and by the time you're at page five, it's, it's um, over. <laughs> that, that character's unrecognizable. Yeah, um, they've, they've so, come alive. Yeah, I mean, basically, my you know my my dad, who was uh, alive at the time, uh, <laughs> uh, felt sure that he was Jeremiah. Um, <laughs> there, <laughs> some people, uh, you know, really need to see who you're basing things off of. But for the most part, you might get an idea that, that, yeah. that you then run with. Um, but as soon as you've, you've run a few pages with it, um, no one would recognize that, that person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you didn't feel almost like you needed to deviate from it so that, so that people wouldn't try to have, create a one-to-one correlation between I characters. At all. Your for one yeah. thing, I, I, for one thing, I didn't think I would publish the book. Um, I just didn't expect it to publish because, um, I, I had been writing these mystery novels with my brother, Lynn and, um, and we, uh, we wrote six and published five with pocketbooks as paperback originals. And, and you know, they were really fun to write, but they didn't get an audience. Nobody really bought them, you know. Um, yeah. huh. A few librarians in Minnesota, but but really nobody else. <laughs> and so, you know, when we hung that up, I just thought, well, you know, I've I've given that a shot and I'm probably never going to, to publish again just because I, I had tried and failed. Um. And I think that that's that that turned me loose to write, um, you know, a book that I just had no expectations for, um, except to try to understand something. So you didn't feel like you had to think about the audience? No, no, not at all. Yeah, I, I didn't. Um, the audience, look, the audience was was um, my wife and my kids. That's the only audience I was thinking about, and so I was I was imagining the twists and turns that would make them happy, um, and and that would be a delight uh, for them. And, and for me, uh, there's, there's a lot of pleasure in writing a story that, that surprises you sometimes and makes you laugh. Um, and, and so that's, that's what I wrote it for. And it was sort of pure in that way. And who knows, maybe that's, maybe that's why it's had some appeal over the years. Hmm. Has that, I mean, the book did pretty well and obviously there's, you know, still an audience for it. Um, what is it almost 15, 16 years later? Is it more than that now? Well, it's more than I mean, it came out in the fall of two thousand one. So, <laughs> oh wow, yeah, okay, it's starting to be an old book. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I mean, is very weird. So, so, but you had it, it found an audience. It, it found a publisher who championed it and good, got some good, good press, good reviews, and and yeah. the, uh, you know, it seems like the the audience continues to grow. But did that then change the process for you as you started writing the next book and then your recent book? Did it change it even more? Oh yeah, I mean it. It made it. Uh, it made it really hard mm. <laughs> <laughs> because you know it, it's one thing to write a book when there's absolutely no audience for it. <laughs> yeah. um, and you, you no know, pressure. It just, 
no pressure at all. Yeah. Uh, you just sort of put your nose to the ground and and you follow the you know follow the scent of it wherever it goes, and you don't think at all about what somebody else might think about it. And then as soon as you've had a book that that actually went out and kind of did something, um, then you you do have you've got a publisher to satisfy. Mm-hmm. You have uh, a readership that you hope is going to come back and, and read you again. Um, and so, yeah, it did sort of complicate the process for me. Uh, it didn't make it easier. Although from this vantage point, almost 20 years on, um, I wouldn't change a thing. It was it was lovely to be, uh, you know, kind of welcomed into the publishing world as a 40-year-old. Mm. Um, and um, and I think that my, my subsequent books um, have, have enjoyed the audience they have largely because that first one was um, a good introduction to me. So I'm really grateful for the whole thing as it's, as it's unspooled. You mentioned being introduced into the publishing world as a 40-year-old. And I think about that idea a lot. Like, when is the right time to be introduced to a writer? Because you'll get, you know, The Atlantic or The New York Times or someone will do the, the 30 best writers under 30. And it makes anybody who's right. over 30 that hasn't fulfilled their dream of writing the book they wanted to write or <laughs> made the movie or whatever feel like they're a failure. <laughs> you don't want to read those things if you're over right. 30. Right? And then someone, I saw somebody online the other day post something like, well, where's the, the list of the 50 great writers who didn't become famous until they were 50? And people mentioned, you know, like Wallace Stevens and people who, you know, just lived their lives yeah. and just kind of yeah. plugged along and then eventually gained some, some modicum of notoriety. But do you think that, I mean... <laughs> Had people discovered the novels that you were writing with your brother, do you think you'd be a different sort of writer than you are now? Oh, yeah. I, I think there's no doubt of that. I mean, if those had caught on, we'd still be writing them today. <laughs> <laughs> Is your brother still um, writing at all? You know. Oh, yeah. He writes novels, and, and he's written wonderful novels. He's got a new one coming out this year. Um, yeah, Lynn Anger, look him up. I will, he wrote yeah. Undiscovered Country, which is like a re- uh, it's a, it's like a retelling of Hamlet set in Minnesota. Um, oh, wow. It's uh, it, it's a lovely book. Uh, Undiscovered Country is his western. Both of us seem to have that a little bit of that western thing in us. Oh, I'm going to ask you about that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so uh, definitely we would be uh, different writers than than we are, and that was a great experience, and it was like a, a cool apprenticeship, and I, yeah. I wouldn't change a thing. But I'm sort of glad now that we that we just couldn't gain an audience because I think that maybe I don't know there's something nice about having something good happen right in midlife, right when you need um, uh, right when you need the spin. You know how they talk in screenwriting about you know at, at page eighty you got to spin the plot. <laughs> yeah, and and here you are halfway through, you're forty years old and the plot gets spun. In your life, and that's that's been um, been terrific. Hmm. I've enjoyed it. So, you, yeah, that may, one of the things I, I'm fascinated by when talking to to writers, especially someone who's written mystery stories, is the way you go about sort of crafting the narrative, breaking the story, to use the screenwriting term that's sometimes yeah. used. So, for you, when you were writing *Peace Like a River*, it sounds like you were, you know, you spent five years doing this, and you were doing it. Um, possibly while doing another job and you were kind of responding yeah. to the situations that you had in your life and then kind of spinning a yarn out of that. Did it feel like you were trying to break a story in the same way that perhaps it did when you were either writing a mystery story and trying to put all the pieces together or maybe unravel them and then let the, you know, and then bring them back together again, or maybe even the way that you did with Virgil Wander say, I mean, was the activity, the sort of creative process of breaking the story different for that novel than it has been for the other ones? Um, it was very different from doing the the mysteries um, because I wasn't following any sort of, when Lynn and I did the mysteries, first of all, because it's a mystery and second, because we were collaborating on them. So we had to understand, you know, he would be writing chapters one through five while I was writing six through 10 simultaneously. So we had to know exactly what happened in every chapter. Mm. Um, and the lovely thing about stepping into, um, you know, Peace Like a River was, um, it literally was like like wading out into a stream and uh, and just letting it carry you down downstream. Um, so you you know every day you get up and you get into the stream at one place. 
Uh, and then you just sort of let it take you down and the scenery unfolds and there are characters who come in and they leave and then maybe they show up again later. But you get just swept away. You get swept downstream um, without too much thinking about what might come at the end. And and so that was a really, I mean, that's why it took me so long. I mean, I did have another job, but still five years is a long time. And I haven't gotten any faster, have I? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know when you started the other ones. Um, but I would, I would say the one thing I think I really carried out of the mystery writing that, that um, was that I knew that I wanted some big things to happen. The great thing about crime writing is it's the genre where things actually happen. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a body falls out of a closet and somebody comes along and they put their nose to the ground and they follow clues to the end. Um, and that's kind of a lovely thing that you can rely on. It's I love the genre. And so I wanted things to happen and I wanted there to be, um, you know, little mysteries. I wanted there to be consequences. And I also remembered the the, the joy of the short declarative sentence. Um, so I, I didn't write it in a in a very flowery um, way. Uh, I wrote it straightforwardly, and I think that was to the story's benefit. So, you know, that all that practice uh, writing um, prose that actually has action in it uh, was really useful when it came to writing a mainstream novel. Hmm. Do you think you would have learned? all of that or been able to become a conscious of what you wanted to do in that way? Had you done something like say, or if you'd gone the traditional route, done an MFA or, I mean, and maybe you did study creative writing in college, but you know, there's a lot of debate these days on what's the best way to teach someone who has a little bit of talent to find their voice and all those things that people talk about. But I mean, could yeah, you, you know, that's, go ahead. that's, I've thought about that a lot because I mean, Lynn and I did really take different routes. Um, Lynn went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, um, which I was incredibly envious of and, yeah. <laughs> and wished it was me, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and was the first really good writer that I knew. Um, and it didn't work out that way for me. Um, you know, I, I did take creative writing in college and it was lovely. And I had a wonderful creative writing prof, uh, the poet Mark Vins up in uh, Moorhead, Minnesota. Um, and he was incredibly uh, generous and stern and just a lovely man to take a class from um, and very helpful to me. Uh, really spent time looking over my pages. Generous and stern. <laughs> yes, both things. Um, he was a great, a, a great prof and I learned a ton from him. I think, I think it was beneficial in a way that I did not follow through and go through an MFA program because I don't know if I would have had the strength of um, maybe the strength of character, not to just sort of uh, go along and try to become what I saw other people becoming. You know, I didn't have a bunch of examples. I didn't have a bunch of peers around me. I didn't have a writing group to share stuff with. Uh, and I don't think that was bad. Um, I, I think, uh, I think that was all right. What I missed out on though, that I think maybe I could have gotten from a program like that would be just more about process. Yeah, and how to um, how to accelerate one's process a little bit. Um, maybe had that happened, I would have written six books over the last twenty years instead of three. Who knows? <laughs> so when you when you talk about that, do you mean like the, the giving yourselves the questions to ask and inventing the story, or what? When you when you talk about speeding up the process, can you be more specific about that? Well, uh, you know exactly what you're talking about. It's like I have to really work my way slowly through a story in order for it to feel organic to me. I guess what I'm saying is, maybe had I gone to school, I'd have learned a cool shortcut or two. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. would have simplified things and made it just a bit easier to get through. I feel instead, and maybe MFA graduates feel this way too, but I feel instead like I'm reinventing the wheel every time I do it. Mm. Now, I'm working on a book now, my fourth novel, and for the first time, I feel like I'm just now at the age of almost 59 getting a handle on how to make this happen. Mm. Um, that is a long, long time to wait for things to begin to come clear. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you get there a bit sooner. This is both terrifying and encouraging. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay. You talk about, you just feel like you're just now 
figuring out how to do this. Okay, so let's, you're, you're writing this new novel. Do you mean that the writing process is going faster or do you mean like you figured out how to create the beats of the story to get you from one point to the other or maybe you, you figured out how to invent an ending faster or do you just mean like just figuring out how to actually do the work itself faster or find ways to focus or something like that. I don't mean to. Um, right. No, a little of both. I mean, that's a fair question. Uh, the, the process is hard for me to break down into components. Right. Okay. Um, so what I mean by accelerating the process is that it's been easier on this book for me to just come into my office in the morning, open my laptop and slide easily into the stream. Um, there hasn't been too much um, frustration that I've, I've just felt like I was on the right track almost from the very beginning. And that's really rare for me. It's, it's difficult for me to, I, I only get two or three good ideas at a time. I know writers who are just so filled with great ideas that it's difficult for them to choose the right one. Um, I get a couple of good ideas at once. Uh, and then I'm not going to get any more until these ideas are played all the way out. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's frustrating if you start on something and then you feel like you can't really get there. Something is blocking you. Mm. Um, this is the first time uh, in my writing life, or I would say the first time since I started Peace Like a River, that I have just felt assured um, that, that this one is, is what it needs to be. It has a job to do, and I'm here to help it get told. Um, that's the first time I've experienced that since since peace. So, do you already have a deadline on that? Whether your publisher? Oh no, saying... I don't. I, no, no one has seen anything. Okay. Um, I, I I don't uh, I don't work with deadlines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I write the book and then I see if if Grove wants to publish it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're talking about how with peace like a river, you would, you knew you'd sit down and you'd try to get back in the flow, and it would take you took you five years to to write it. Did, yeah. At what point did you, well, I think this is a kind of a, it's either a two-part question or two different ways of asking the same question. When you're writing along and you have a new idea come to you, say you've pursued your other two ideas to an end point and maybe you thought, okay, this one can stay and this other one is obviously not going to work and it has to go. How do yeah. you know though, when an idea suits the book that you're working on? And so how did you know, for example... Um, that you wanted, say, Ruben to lead the posse astray towards the end of the book, and then, and how did you know that was the right decision to make as a writer uh, that that it suited your book and the, and the things that you were after in the story? And then at the same time, do you know? Do you have a sense, at least? Maybe you don't know, but maybe you have a sense of where key scenes are going to lead in the end. And are you trying to think about okay, there's these four or five key moments in the novel that have to add up to something later that's that makes them meaningful? Or on the other hand, are you going to kind of call back to those in a rewrite process? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, that really is. I think you know it is. There is a two part answer here. One is that. Um, all of those questions about what, what belongs, what's going to work, all that is much more difficult in the first half of a novel for me. Because in the second half, everything that I set into motion just sort of takes over. And by the last 20% of the book, you're up on the wave and you're just surfing toward shore as fast as you possibly can. It's just carrying you along and it's all you can do to sort of keep up with it. So you know, if you have set it up correctly, then then it will pick you up and carry you that, down that home stretch. That, that home stretch. Um, that being said, there are still lots of times where I think I'm really onto something, <laughs> and it just and it feels good, and um, and I'm having fun writing it. And then I hit a point in the book where I realize, oh no, that actually doesn't work very well at all. So, you know, I mean, I love to write with confidence, but I never fully trust my confidence. Mm. because so often I end up, you know, that's why they talk about killing your darlings. Yeah. There's <laughs> stuff that you really feel good about. Some of your best writing um, in all of my books, I have thrown away what I was convinced were, were the best pages in my mm. manuscript. Mm. Um, Do you recycle them? Go. Uh, no, so far I have not. I have everything though. I never mm. throw them away. Right, right. You don't literally throw them away. <laughs> no, I threw away a draft of Virgil because I just didn't want to rely on it. And I, and I just started again. And, uh, and, and that was painful to do. But I knew that if I kept it, I would end up relying on it. And I did not, didn't want to do that. So 
you finished a draft, didn't have anything else and threw it away, or it was a you had like a couple drafts and threw away an earlier one? No, no. I, I finished a draft, uh, read it after several months away, and realized it was not a good book and threw it away and, mm. and wrote it again. Um, you know, keeping some of the themes and keeping some of the characters, but writing essentially a different novel. Um, and, and then when I finished that, I knew I had something. So, mm. so what about it told you, I mean, many of our listeners have read, read Virgil Wander and, uh, some of them, in fact, as soon as they finished piece like a river went and read, went and read it. So, um, right. I know people are being interested to hear, but how, how did you know, you said you knew that you, it wasn't very good. What about it just jumped off the page to you and said, I can do better than this. Well, uh, page by page, I liked it quite well, but I had written it differently than, uh, the book that, that readers encounter. Um, I had written it in, um, uh, in, in, in the voices of several characters, uh, uh in a third person narration that jumped around from, from person to person. And because that's an elegant way to tell a story. I mean, I really yeah. like when I read um, Louise Erdrich, uh, oh, yeah. who, who often uses that, that means of telling a story. I, I love that. I, uh, I'm, I'm into it. And so I was trying to write a book that would be constructed in that fashion. Mm. Um, but it did not, and it doesn't work for every book and it didn't work for this one. Yeah. Um, it, it felt jarring. Uh, John Gardner wrote a, a terrific book called On Becoming a Novelist that I read several times over the years. And I love his description that a novel should be like a vivid, continuous dream. And what I noticed was I would <laughs> just be slipping into the dream and all of a sudden I'd be jerked out of the dream by this transition to a different narrator. Hmm. And, so as the um, reader, you were being pulled out of the dream, not as the writer. Yeah, exactly. When, when you were going back. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. When I was, when I went back, uh, it just, it just felt very jarring. It didn't work for the story I needed to tell. So when I thought about reimagining that story, it, it came in the voice of, um, you know, of, of Virgil, uh, who, hmm. you know, a version of him was in that early draft too, but he had nothing to do with telling the story. He was just a townsperson. And when I thought about who was the most interesting to me and who would have something to say and who might have a, a fascinating interior arc to follow, um, because it was always more of a character book than an action book, um, I thought, no, if Virgil just begins this story, uh, then then people will want to stay with him right the way through. Um, so that's what I hoped. And, and he had just the kind of voice I was looking for, as it turned out. Mm. You mentioned that it's a character book and not an action book, but you also said that when you were writing a piece like a river, you wanted a book where things happen. So do you, yes. do you think I mean, you created sort of a, a dichotomy, I guess, there between action and character or books that are defined by yeah. one or the other? Yeah. Do yeah. you, do you have to decide something like that at the outset that I'm going to write a book where things happen, or I'm going to write a book that is primarily about being inside someone's head or, or do you have, does that just kind of the book kind of becomes what it is and you and you look back and you say, Oh, well that was a character book or as opposed to an action book. I suppose it can happen either way. For me, um, I, I pretty much decide at the outset, okay. you know, here's, here's a story that's going to rely on incident. Um, you know, a, a story where a character is revealed through incident and, and that's terrific with Virgil. I knew I was going to set a book in one place for the first time, my other two novels had been road stories. Um, and a road story has an inherent advantage because the scenery is always changing, right? Yeah. Uh, you look out the window, you see something new every day. And so that means you're going to have some incident and some action. Uh, whereas you set a, a, a book in a small town on the North shore of Lake Superior and you, you know, there's going to be occasional bursts of action and there are in Virgil, but mostly that's going to be a character novel. Um, or at least that's how I envisioned this one. So I was at mm. peace with that from the outset. Mm. Um, and it was, it was really fun to do. It was really enjoyable to do. I had a good time writing Virgil Wander. So there are obviously some connections between three books, um, some thematic connections and place connections and things like that. Um, my family comes from Ontario and from Wisconsin. Uh. So something of mm -hmm. the same. <laughs> I have some familiarity sure, with the region. You, you that know you're... the Great Lakes region then? Yeah. In fact, my grandparents, uh, my dad grew up in Milwaukee, but my grandparents lived in, live still in Green Bay. So right on the lake. Um, it's a little bit different, obviously, than uh, the Lake Superior. Um, right. Uh -huh. But 
I, you know, I've spent a lot of time driving across all the, all these States. And, and, uh, then we lived in Idaho for a little while and I was always very fascinated by, uh, by the West, by Western stories. I loved, you yeah. know, everything from Louis L'Amour to Lonesome Dove to, you know, oh, later, yeah. on, later on the, uh, the uh, Cormac, the, you know, the, the border trilogy and, you know, oh, Zane Gray. Yeah, yeah. Zane, reading. Yeah. Um, I actually just finished listening to um, All the Pretty Horses again for like the third or fourth time. So listening to the audiobook while I drive. Narration? The one that I, the one that I listened to, um, it was not, it was an older one. Um, but I hadn't listened to it okay. in so long, so I just put it on. And then after that, I said, "I, well, I, I got to stay in this this space." So now I'm listening to the 36 hour audiobook of Lonesome Dove, which is going to take me a while. But um, oh my goodness, what what great writing! I know. So you okay, know, Mercury is one of those guys. I mean, he makes it seem so easy. Oh no, I was, that's <laughs> exactly what I was writer. thinking this morning. Actually, it's, okay. So, I mean, I can't imagine it was easy for him, but. Um, I interviewed Wendell Berry one time and he talked about how they were both at Stanford together uh, oh, studying no under Wallace Stegner. Um, oh my gosh. So it was Barry and I think it was Barry and Ernest Gaines and Ken Casey and some there's uh-huh. four or five of these guys all together studying at Stanford on the Stegner fellowship. Um, oh my goodness. So that was, that, that must've been what a scene. You'd like to be a fly on that wall. I know all these guys just as they're, you know, in their late twenties discovering, you know, what they're going to write about and, and learning the craft, oh especially, and then you've got Stegner of course. But so, so for me, two things that I've always loved are Westerns and movies. So, yeah. so some of the themes in your, in your books obviously are pretty appealing. And I'm curious, I always thought of when I was a kid about how living in the upper Midwest is like living on the edge of the wilderness, right? It's like living on the edge of the West. Right. And so we would drive from, when we moved to Idaho, we would drive across through Yellowstone, Montana, North Dakota, Minnesota, all these States to go visit my grandparents. <laughs> and that was always, I, I loved that so much as a little kid. And yeah. so yeah. is there a real, is there, a, you know, in a 10 year old way, I guess I kind of romanticized it as I was reading Zane Gray and so forth. Is that how you felt as a kid? And is that what kind of med generates your interest in it? That, it, you know, you kind of live on the edge oh, of this world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think our stories are probably pretty similar. We were, uh, I grew up in West central Minnesota near Alexandria, a little town called Osakis. And uh, in the fall, uh, we would go to Oaks, North Dakota, to that area, southeast North Dakota, to go goose hunting. Uh, both of my parents came from that part of North Dakota. And so we uh, we were a family that never went east. We only went west. West was the direction. Um, hmm. And even though it wasn't very far west, uh, in you know, from Minnesota to North Dakota is not that far. It was about a three-hour drive. Um, that to me basically defined frontier and adventure. And so, you know, dad was a band director, which meant on those hunting weekends, we would have to leave after the football game, um, (laughs) because dad would have to play, you know, the the halftime show, the band would play, and then we'd pile into the car and we would leave Osakis and drive to one of the grandparents' houses out in North Dakota. Mm. And so, you know, you're driving along and it's totally dark. And back in that day, a lot of the drive was on gravel roads. So you, you've got that hum, that road hum underneath you. And sometimes a piece of gravel is hitting the car. Um, and it's just dark and miles between farms. Do you have an airstream? (laughs) Didn't have an airstream. Always wanted one. Used to sometimes see people with airstreams, but I think, man, what would I give for that? Um, That's why you write a book about it, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, writing a book is always kind of wish fulfillment. <laughs> yeah. What do yeah. I love? Just anything you love just goes in the pages. <laughs> um, boy, that makes it fun. Yeah, huh. It sounds like you know what I'm talking about. If you're, you're a fan of Westerns um, and you're, you're driving from Idaho to Wisconsin, that's a long haul. That's a lot of hours in the backseat oh, yeah. of whatever you're riding in. Oh, yeah. I remember being eight years old. No. 10 years old and moving from Green Bay to Boise, Idaho for my dad's job. And we had, they had one of those station wagons where we'd sit, you'd sit in the back facing the very, very back facing the other person <laughs> and not facing <laughs> out, but like facing my brother and sitting back there and yeah, yeah. doing our best to imagine that we were, you know, on a wagon train or something. And, you know, the, oh, the Oregon yeah. trail went through Boise and where we lived. And, and then, you know, 
um, just we'd go to Yellowstone on the way up during the summer to go visit grandparents and we'd go camping and see grizzly bears and stop in the Western stores and stuff. And I was trying to, yeah, you, know, yeah. you, you do everything you can as a little kid to like, feel like you are part of that Western story, you know, like to feel like you, you absolutely you, do. And you could fit in, in the it's story. It's easy to imagine yourself in it. Yeah. You know, it really is. Yeah. It's simple because, because the landscape is so wide open mm-hmm. that it genuinely feels like anything can happen. You know, uh, anything is possible on some of those wide spaces. Fantastic. I'm glad you have those memories. I've got them too. So when you're thinking about these books, as someone who loved Western stories and, and seems to love the West and, you know, the, at least the concept of the West, do you think of, have you ever thought of yourself as, I mean, was Davy meant to be a cowboy, like, or a character who wanted to be a cowboy? Or did you ever have that sort of longing to, well, to i mean i guess swedes telling cowboy stories obviously yeah yeah absolutely and and you know at some point she kind of transitions in her storytelling um uh, you know when she's when she's writing about sunny sundown um sunny gets himself in trouble and and um you know he's got some enemies that are not unlike the people who are after davy um and and so i mean the way that happened uh, the whole sunny sundown thing as a as a way to get inside the mind of, a, 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 of um, you know, of Swede and see what she makes of everything that, that is happening was a happy accident because um, my younger son at that point um, was just starting to like talk and get an idea of what stories were all about. Mm-hmm. And he, he came out in his pajamas one morning when I was working and said, do you have any cowboys in your book? <laughs> and I was on, a, you know, page 30 or something. And I said, no, but if you'll give me a name for one, I'll just, I'll just put one in. Uh, and he said, "Sunny Sundown. Call him Sunny Sundown." <laughs> you know, he clearly had been thinking about this for a while. He knew right uh, away. And he was three. You know, yeah. he knew right away. He gave me the name, so then I, I put Sunny in for him, thinking, "Well, you know, if this doesn't work in the story, I can always just take it out." But in the meantime, it doesn't hurt to write a little cowboy poetry. Yeah. Um, and then it became one of the parts of the story that um, that I that I think works the best. <laughs> Funny how that happens. Yeah. So I want to I want to bring this up actually because we did have some people ha- had that had some questions about this and I I imagine you've heard this before. Sure. There were some questions about um, I, I I guess the best way to put it is Swede's mental capacity. <laughs> like she's very she's so intelligent. She that it might be a little unrealistic was the question. I wasn't. I mean I don't know that I would call it a complaint, but there was a question of would. How, how old is she supposed to be 10? Would a, would a 10-year-old girl, regard, even the most precocious 10-year-old girl, be able to get into the sort of meta questions that she's asking? So I was wondering if that's something that ever occurred to you. Um, and that's the most interpretive question I'll ask you, but enough people asked it that I, that I figured I'd, you know, they'll get mad at me if I don't at least bring it up and let you, you know, talk about how you thought about that. Oh yeah, you know. Look, I think I think a couple of things about it. First, there are some incredibly smart little kids out there. Uh, when I was when I was touring for that book, um, I went to a store and there was a, a, a couple of parents and they brought their daughter in. She was nine years old. She had filled a notebook with her poetry that she had mm-hmm. then illustrated hmm. uh, with with pen and ink and and watercolors, and 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 the poetry was really good. I mean, it was really smart. Um, and it was funny. And a lot of it was, was kind of episodic like stories. And, um, and they had read Peace Like a River. Um, and they thought, geez, this is like our kid. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they brought her in, we took a picture together. It was, uh, uh which made me feel in some ways vindicated because you're right. A lot of people have asked about that. The yeah. other thing that, that, that I girls winning the Pulitzer prize in like three years. Yeah, right. Um, the, the other thing I think is is, is kind of amusing is that um, in a book where a man multiplies a bowl of soup, um, <laughs> this was my case. <laughs> in, a, in a in a book where you know a guy does miracles and, and walks on the on the open air, um, it's a little strange to to wonder if maybe Swede's a little too smart for her. <laughs> that was my case. Can, really can I funny. can I ask you about that though? Because Sure. I was thinking about this just from the from a writer's perspective. When these ideas, these concepts of of the miracles come to mind, whether it's uh, the way Ruben survived when he was born, or the walking on air type thing, or the multiplying the soup, or the healing the superintendent, whatever right. it is, did um, yeah. did you feel like okay, this is a great idea? But did you ever feel any sort of um, need to ex- 
like or question yourself about whether you needed to explain why it was happening or did you feel from the get-go that the nature of this book is such that it doesn't i don't need to explain it beyond like this sort of subtextual stuff that's there like does yeah, that make no, sense I, I, I didn't feel any need to to explain it I, I i really did not um and no one seemed to want me to yeah right. um you know, I mean, if a story works, it just works and you, and you go with it. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I had a couple of thoughts about miracles then, not just because I wanted one for my son who, who didn't get one, but then when he was 16, grew out of the asthma, <laughs> like a lot of kids oh, well, do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, one was that I, I remember thinking about my grandfather, uh, on my mother's side who, uh, you know, while he was. Uh, in North Dakota at his mechanic shop was sucked out of the shop by a tornado and carried half a mile through the air. Um, he, he literally had that happen to him. He didn't have the really uh, gentle um, put down. He, he woke up with a broken leg. Um, and, uh, but he didn't, he did survive it. And he, and he crawled wow. back to town, you know, wow. uh, crawled back to town and surprised his wife who thought he was dead. Um, and I couldn't help but think, you know, what would that do? What what impact might that have on you? Mm. Um, and so yeah. that was something to sort of uh, go from. Um, and so I wanted to write about miracles partly because of that experience, partly because I wanted a miracle, but then also because it always, it seems to me that the, um, you know, the world is full of frauds. Uh, it's full of televangelists and, and, and people who march around on stages and they produce this or that, that miracle. And, um, and part of me just wanted to, to say, well, how about if I call BS on that? Yeah. Um, but that if I allow for miracles, because it seems to me that, that most miracles probably happen for one person, you know, hmm. that, that, um, that a miracle might have only one witness and that's enough. Um, I, I love that notion of the miraculous. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I asked that question not because I think you should have, you know, explained it, but because I think right. as a creative, as a person uh, who's writing, there's you have to have a certain amount of confidence in your ability to to pull off those scenes in a way that you know, doesn't leave people saying, well, what's the equation that makes this possible? So like there does, yeah, right. there do, you do have to have yeah. some confidence or, or at least the capacity to, or maybe you don't need to have confidence. Maybe you just need to have the capacity to do it and then discover you have the capacity to do, <laughs> to do it. Um, but, you, know, you know, I mean, the miracles are the reason for the story. I, I wanted yeah. to write about, uh, you know, a wondrous thing, um, uh, wondrous things sort of bubbling out the fingertips of this, of this man. Now, who's an ordinary guy and a janitor who loves his kids? Um, that that just struck me as being uh, that's a book I would read. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, so I did it for I did it for pleasure. I did it for joy. Do you have to avoid miracles in your books now, <laughs> or are you going to become the guy who writes books oh, about miracles all the time? Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny. I I've never really thought about that um, because I've always got an idea going that is pretty strong on its own, I guess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I do always want to allow for something that stretches our usual tiny perspective, you yeah. know, because our perspectives are small. I mean, we're tiny creatures. We live short lives. We're usually afraid of something and that makes us, you know, gullible and, and sad and ripe for exploitation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So, uh, so I, I like the idea of um, allowing for a, a, a wider lens um, and if there's a man who can, um, walk off of a hay rack and walk onto the air that, that maybe stretches the lens just a little bit. Um, uh, I, I like, I like knowing that something like that can always happen in one of my stories. Okay. So when you're working and something, you know, maybe something that stretches you or stretches your imagination or, or that you say, okay, this is an idea that can stretch the audience how do you decide whether it's um, the kind of thing that's <laughs> stretching for the sake of stretching or that it's stretching uh -huh. and is right for the particular story? Like maybe you have an idea and you have to set that aside. And I don't mean, I, mean, I guess I'm asking all these meta questions about how you craft stories, but I'm, I right. guess, you know, I'm fascinated by the, the decisions that writers have to make because there's a fine line between 
making a decision as a writer that's going to push your novel to the next level and then the one that you regret maybe putting in oh there. yeah no that's that's a a perceptive question to ask um the answer for me is i, I can't always tell at the time yeah um sometimes i just can't tell and so um you know i've got a couple of good readers my wife is a tremendous reader and um and she can usually tell pretty early on if if an idea is going to work or if it's not she'll say that one's a bridge too far i'll say ah but i really love it she's (laughs) like well um okay but i don't i mean i'm just going on the record here saying i don't think that's going to work and and she's usually right i mean not every time but almost every time she's right and then i also have a really good editor at um at grove atlantic uh, who is able to look through my drafts, which in fairness, by the time she sees them, they're usually fairly clean. Um, and she's able to read a story uh, very dispassionately, uh, but also compassionately because we've known each other since 2000. Um, and so she knows what to expect from me. She understands my strengths and my weaknesses. And she's able to say yes to this. How about if you rethink this? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Is that the mark of a good um, editor? To, do that to be dispassionate and compassionate at the same time? Yes, you've got to be both things. Yeah. You've got to be both things. I, I've been lucky. Um, you know, not, not many writers get to work with the same editor for 20 years. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So other than a great editor and your family, who are some of the writers that inspire you or inspired you when you were getting started and then continue to inspire you today? Oh, there, there are people I go back to um, time after time when I need a certain kind of inspiration. Um, I go back to uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, hmm. um, not just Treasure Island, although certainly that, but um, but his his other novels, um, uh, Kidnapped is a terrific story. Uh, he seems to me um, way, way, way ahead of his time. When you consider that he was a contemporary of somebody like um, James Fenimore Cooper, uh, Cooper wrote great stories, but wow, his prose was just impenetrable. Um, it's, it's very difficult to read. One of the rare writers that, um, if there's a movie, just watch the movie, uh, because the story is is worth knowing, um, but the, but the book is hard to read. So you compare that with uh, with Stevenson, and Stevenson seems like he might be around today. You know, yeah. like in the next yeah. room, writing his novels. Uh, so I go back to him. Uh, on the regular, uh, I like to read sort of early uh, Larry McMurtry. You mentioned Lonesome Dove; those are yeah. wonderful books. I love them all, um, but I think I might like some of his other ones even better. Um, mm-hmm. You know, his his um, his Texas trilogy. Uh, actually, I think there are more than that, but but the early ones, especially Last Picture Show, yeah, um, Texasville. These are really good stories about people that you really love in a place that you don't want to leave when the book is over. Mm. Um, and so I go back to those. He wrote a book in 1962, published it in 1962, called All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. Oh, I, um, someone was just talking about this, and I couldn't remember what the title was. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. It's so good. It's so funny. He's got so much youth and energy just pulsing through his writerly veins at that point in his life. <laughs> and he just threw this book off. I think he wrote it real fast. Um, and it's absolutely lovely. Um, I, I like to read George Saunders' short stories. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, he's he's a, a source of inspiration for me because of his incredible sort of kindness. I mean, he's got this, this razor wit, um, that I, that I can only envy, but also this, this generosity with his characters. You can always tell when a writer loves their characters and when they're, uh, indifferent to them or or when they want to use them for some, uh, purpose and they make them a political mouthpiece or what have you, you can always tell. And Saunders strikes me as someone who just absolutely adores these people on the page. And he's going to give them the benefit of the doubt at all times. I, I love that about him. Um, I, I really like to read uh, Louise Erdrich. She's just tremendous. Um, and has such such beauty and humanity in her sentences. Um, my wife, Robin, just got the new Ann Patchett book, The Dutch House. I can't wait to read it. Uh, I think she's a terrific writer. Do, do you um, find that you have to... Um 
so this is kind of a silly way of putting it. So forgive me. Mm. But so you say you're writing your novel now and you know, you're going to spend three hours a day working on it. I don't, I'm hypothetically speaking. Mm. Do you, do you find that for your own um, sanity to create, create, keep the juices flowing to maybe get out of your head a little bit, you have to have for every hour of writing a certain hour of reading or that there is some kind of correlation between successful writing and, and doing reading really good books. The mathematical. Uh, you know, that's a good question. Kind of uh, I don't. I don't think there's a mathematical. Uh, I don't think there's an algorithm. Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's important for me to read every day. Um, sometimes I don't read anything until night, and then you know, around eight thirty or nine, I'll, I'll pick up a book and, and just read until I am too sleepy to read any further. Um, and I think it's important to read really widely, um, and and not maybe not novels that are just like the one you're working on because you don't want to fall into any traps. You don't want to be too open to suggestion, but you do want to uh, to learn something, to read some prose that you admire. I think it's important not to read crap. Yeah. Um, it's, it's important to really read books that, that you can respect um, and that when you encounter one that's garbage, to just set it aside um, rather than push your way through. Uh, but no, I, I, I read a lot, and I read fiction, nonfiction, biographies, histories, um, encyclopedias. Do you still read uh, mystery novels? You said you really liked the, you, you liked writing them. Do you still read them? I, occasionally, I do. I, I like the the Donna Leon mysteries, uh, the Italian writer. Um, she's she's tremendous. I like to read um, books by people in other parts of the world. I've just been on a little Carl Ove Nosgaard kick. Um, read his 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 six part um, sort of quasi novels that are are really just books about his life, <laughs> um, and they're 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 tremendous. Uh, you know, the mark of a great book to me is one that makes you want to run out and write something exactly like it, and mm. uh, and Nosgard has that effect on me. Um, but yeah, yes to the crime novels. Um, Henning Mankell, who who died yeah. in the last few years. Uh, I, I loved all of his books about Wallander, um, and it's and it's really nice to be able to dip in and revisit, um, you know, characters that span the course of many novels. I do adore that. That yeah. being said, there's a certain type of uh, mass market crime novel that I don't read anymore because I read so many of them when I were writing them um, that uh, you know I'm not tempted, for example, to to go back and read the Spencer novels again. Um, mm. I, I, I loved those, but I, you know, I just flat out read too many. <laughs> I, read, I, read, <laughs> I read all the, all the Spencers and all the Travis McGee's and I, because, you know, you trying to keep your finger on the pulse. Yeah. yeah. Um, and now I don't really have the urge to go back and read those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Lou, all the, the Ross McDonald novels. Oh yeah, I love the Ross McDonald novels. Those are those are wonderful, hard boiled. Uh, Dashiell Hammett, you know, yeah, um, credited as sort of an inventor of the hard boiled style. He was yeah. fun to read. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> okay, I want to before you go, I want to ask you about the movie, yeah. the movie part of this, because obviously, um, in in Peace Like a River, the the old movie theater um, comes right. up. Roxana's father, right? Am I remember that right? Yeah. Yes, and then yes. the, there's all the allude to all the references to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is, uh-huh. um, although maybe the movie itself is not referenced in it, that one of my five favorite movies probably. So I like the, all the references to the character, certainly. Yeah. And, then, and then in Virgil Wander, of course, you've got um, the the obvious movie <laughs> tie-in part of it. Um, so An entire closet full of them. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. So where, I mean, was that where movies just something you loved as a child as a, as a form of storytelling that just, that sort of sprang out of you in, in these stories? Oh yeah. I mean, I, uh, it's just, it's hard for me to imagine um, two hours better spent than just going to a theater and watching, yeah. uh, watching a movie, even, even kind of a bad movie uh, <laughs> yeah. can yeah. be can be a good a, a good expenditure of the of the two hours. Um, no, I, I just I love that kind of storytelling and and I love certain style. Westerns really have a pull for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I won't just indiscriminately watch any old western, but I will watch I will watch a lot of them. Uh, I actually have the 
you know, one of the original posters from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid up oh, in my really? office. So I, I see those guys every day <laughs> running out of that of that little casita, you know, and getting yeah. shot at the end. What a screenplay. Um, yeah, what a screenplay. Holy smokes. William Goldman knew how to write a screenplay. Yeah, no kidding. Um, he also knew how to write just prose in general. <laughs> yes, he did. Wasn't he something? <laughs> Not a lot. Of, he, he was. The kind of people that make you envious, right? Did, did you ever read his memoir about screenwriting? It's called um, Adventures in the Screen Trade. Yeah, and then the second one is called um, What Lie Did I Tell or something like that. More Adventures in the Screen Trade. I have yeah. the second one, but I've read the first one, but I don't own it. Yeah, yeah. Well, those books are those books are worth their weight in gold. Fantastic. Good advice for anyone who wants to write. So, Nobody knows anything. So if you had to say your top five favorite movies, what, what would you point to? Or the five, maybe the five movies the most sort of inspire you as a writer to motivate you to be creative and turn to, you know, get back, get back to work. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's kind of a fun one. I would say that certainly Butch Cassidy is, is in the top five. Um, if I can include teleplays, um, I would, I would put, um, the mini series of Lonesome Dove in there, mm. um, which I, which I completely adore. Um, there is a great cast. Uh, there's a wonderful movie that, that most people don't really remember called tender mercies with robert duvall is it the um, one where he's playing the um, Tess harper the is it the music he's a one? washed up country yeah. country western singer yeah um and uh, i remember seeing that i think it it won an academy award but it's a really super quiet little movie that that um has a cult following i guess but it's a very small cult following um and and duvall is just brilliant at it and the and the the, the screenplay by horton foot is Mm. is just minimalist. I mean, there's very little dialogue. Um, and so it's very performance dependent and the performances are brilliant. Um, and it just makes you see a oh, weight. Um, this, this story makes you understand that character, just a character story is every bit as, um, enticing and gripping mm. as a movie with Tom Cruise running a lot. Um, there's, there's, there's so much going on in that character and the arc is so, um, clear and yet uh, complex that um, that I, I love that movie. When I think of great movies, that one comes to mind. Um, and since we're sort of on, I, I guess I'm on a little bit of a Western kick. Um, another one would be the the, uh, the Gray Fox, uh, which oh, is a, okay. again, a very little known movie, but it's about, it's about Bill Miner, who was a uh, sort of a, a polite and gentlemanly train robber. Um, and he, it's about this old, it's a true story. This, this old guy comes out of prison. He's just served 20 years for bank robbery. Um, and he goes into a movie theater and, and he sees a film called the great train robbery. So it must be like 1903, which I think is when the great train robbery came out. It was one of the first films to be shown in theaters ever. Mm. Um, and Bill Miner walks in and, and he encounters this movie. Um, and People in the theater, are, all these cowboys are seeing their first movie, and they're, they're so excited, they're jumping to their feet and shooting their pistols in the air because they're, they're confusing it with reality, right? And and Bill Miner, you just see, there's a great close-up, um, and you, you can see the, the, oh, Richard the Farnsworth. movie is playing out. Richard Farnsworth, that's the guy, and he is just a, a perfect actor in that role. He's a splendid actor anyway. See yeah. anything you can with Richard Farnsworth. Uh, but that's my favorite Richard Farnsworth role. He plays Bill Miner, and he's this. He he looks at this movie and he thinks that is my next line of work. And so he takes <laughs> up train robbing, and he's really good at it. And he's he's so polite that people sort of don't mind being robbed by, <laughs> by him. I mean, it's, it's very romantic, um, yeah. but it's it's a lovely, lovely movie and a, did, and, a, and a great screenplay. Did you see the movie that came out? Oh, maybe last year. Uh, it was going to be. Um, the last movie that, um, who was it? Talk about Redford. Yeah. Redford's <laughs> last movie where he, he's, he's the polite bank robber. What is that called? Yeah, the, the old man and the gun. I, yes, I have not yes. seen it. I have not seen it. I'm, uh, I'm, it's, you it's really called that to mind quickly though, given that you haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I read about it and yeah. then when it came to town, it was here for all of a week. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't get out and see it while it was here. So I, um, now I have I'm sure a feeling, it's streaming someplace. I have a feeling you'd like it because it's got a good combination of 
things that happen, but a lot of it takes place in the mind of this this guy who's definitely of a different era. <laughs> Not well, that you're I, of a different era, was, but I heard he was really good in it, so yeah, I, I can't wait to see it. Sounds like fun. Well, I, I'll let you go. I've kept you for, uh, I guess, a little over an hour now. But is there? What's the last great uh, thing you saw or read? Oh, the last great thing that I saw or read. Um, I just finished up. Um, I'll give you two. Okay. One is I just finished up um, volume six of the Nosgard uh, set that I told you about. Okay. Um, My struggle part six. Uh, and he brought it to a very satisfactory conclusion. This is a 3,000-page effort. The, the, the six book, books comprise 3,000 pages, essentially about one depressed Norwegian. <laughs> I was going to say, was gonna <laughs> say the Norwegian. <laughs> um, and I, I can't tell you exactly why I loved it, but I was glued to the page. I completely um, adored all six of those books, and I was happy with the way he completed it. Um, remarkable, just a great achievement. The other one is that I went back for reasons I um, guess I can't really explain, but you know how sometimes a title will sort of call to you yeah. and you think I have to see that or I have to read that. Um, and I went back and read a book that I hadn't read since I was a little boy, uh, which was a, uh, a retelling of the Robin Hood legends. And this one was published in uh, maybe 1957. Um, I want to say 57, and I can't remember the man who retold it right now. His, his name has slipped my mind. But, but um, to read the Robin Hood stories told as a novel, so it's you know all the familiar old adventures are there, huh. um, but it's but it's told in a very linear fashion, and it and it and it follows him through to the end of his life. Um, and I, I absolutely was captivated by it. I fell into it like Narnia. It was just, I couldn't get out. It was just lovely. And when I wake in the night, uh, which I often do, I, I, I have a little bit of intermittent insomnia. Um, I, I read I read Robin Hood for two nights instead of sleeping, and it was time well spent. Mm. Um, really, really good stuff. Mm. So those are my recent ones. So I said that was my last question. I have to go back to one other thing because I got asked about it okay. multiple times, and people begged me to... And a couple of people begged me to ask you about this. So a quick Google search lets people know that Peace Like a River was optioned for a movie at one point. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, and people want to know, what's the deal with this? <laughs> <laughs> so I said I'd ask. <laughs> and you can no, say, you no, can say I can't talk about it if you want, but no. I did my duty. It's been under option continuously. And... Um, uh, you know, we've come close a few times. I mean, <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've had some close calls. I'm confident that at some point, I mean, there's a really good script okay. right now um, that, that took a lot of work. So you are happy with that part of it. To get that to Yeah, I think the script is terrific. And we've had, you know, the producers have um, been the same producers all along who optioned it. And so I've had, uh, I've really developed a close friendship with the producers and, and I have a lot of, of trust in them. They've, um, They've really been faithful to the source material. And, and I think eventually they'll make a really good movie out of it. Um, but yeah. who knows when. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these things take... <laughs> getting something from the page to you know a theater is a, is a wild journey for almost any movie. It really alone. is. And you know, yeah. there are no superheroes in this story. Um, and it's, a hard, it's hard, tougher and tougher to get a, a non-superhero movie made, I think. Yeah, I, I think all the time, would Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid great though the script is have been made today probably yeah. not i mean i guess you tie probably redford not. and and um newman to it and that helps but you know what the studio still has to take a chance yeah, what a, okay so let me ask you a question did you yeah. ever see um did you see a movie about butch cassidy um as an old guy since you know he didn't die as we know um in bolivia uh, there's there's a movie that came out a few years ago called blackthorn Starring Sam Shepard as an aging Butch Cassidy. I did not see it. Um, it is wonderful. It's okay. just terrific. And I'm his adding performance it to my list. Is, um, is just something to see. He's a terrific old Butch. <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, Sam Shepard, geez. Yeah. Yeah. Talk yeah. about a good writer, too. I know. He, 
he kind of was Butch Cassidy. (laughs) Well, um, I've kept you a few minutes longer than I said I would. So I apologize for that, but thank you so much for taking the time. It's been, it's been a pleasure just getting to chat. about I completely enjoyed it. Sorry for all the meta questions. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. It was, it was a lot of fun to talk with you and, and thank you for, um, uh, for, for, you know, doing this with my book. I really appreciate it. Well, the audience really enjoyed it. And I mean, frankly, we're kind of begging for it for a little while. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun being able to dive into it and, you know, argue about some things in it. And you told me um, that it's hard for you to listen to stuff like that because it feels a little bit like you're dead, which, uh, which is, a, <laughs> yeah, I, think that, I think that was your true. phrase. So I, I totally get that. I think that if I had written a novel and a bunch of people were talking about it, I'd, I would definitely feel a little bit like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, you know, in the rafters yeah. of the, of the, of the church. So, um, yes, yes, exactly. Thank you for, for your work though. And for writing. And, um, we are, I'm very excited to see what this, this fourth novel, uh, ends up being. So, um, I, I am too. No. I am too. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks again. I, I uh, really enjoyed visiting with you. Well, thanks so much to Mr. Anger for joining me on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you would like to learn more about Mr. Anger's work, you can go to groveatlantic.com slash author slash Leif Anger. That's L-E-I-F dash E-N-G-E-R. And of course, you can also find his books on Amazon and you can find him on Twitter and on Instagram if you so desire. Hope you'll check out his books if you have not done so already. If you want to follow along with us here at Close Reads, you can do so, as I said earlier, at the top of the show, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Close Reads Pods. You can sign up for the email newsletter, which we send out periodically, and that's closereads.substack.com. And you can join the, the conversation on our Facebook group. And also, one, finally, I want to let you know about our Patreon page. We do have a Patreon account where we post bonus episodes. And right now, we are working our way through crime and punishment. We do an episode on that every two weeks, about an hour and a half. So we're doing a pretty deep dive on that as well as the regular show, which of course you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Well, with that, thanks so much for listening. Hope you'll join us for the next episode here on Close Reads. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.